This week on Not Sam Wrestling, we go over the first Raw and SmackDown of the Heyman Bischoff era, or was it? We talk about Seth Rollins' Twitter apology, Booker T versus Matt Riddle, Mike Quackenbush, the legend, is joining us on the show. Happy Independence Day. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. There has been content coming out the wazoo. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Feel like I've been saying that a lot. That's because of all these bonus shows we've been doing. We've been doing so many bonus shows, they haven't even been all Patreon exclusives. Just uh, over the weekend... I did another bonus show the last two weekends. Don't get used to it either. But enjoy them when they're here. The last two weekends, I did bonus shows that uh, that all of you had access to right there on the podcast feed, wherever you get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, you know, Spotify, SoundCloud. You were able to get the bonus shows. Hear my interview with Riddick Moss two weeks ago. And then last weekend was the bonus show covering the announcement of Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff coming to Monday Night Raw and SmackDown Live, respectively. Uh, If you want to hear what I thought about those uh, and all that stuff, you can go to the podcast feed right now and check out those shows. There was also more bonus content that was put over at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling, audio and video, uh, a post-show for uh, AEW's Fighter Fest that we did right after the pay-per-view, and more. Uh, Of course, the Discord room being updated all the time. So check all that stuff out. And of course... Uh, slowly but surely, all the interviews that happen here on the podcast are making their way to the YouTube channel. So make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel. You can even watch the non-wrestling Sam Roberts Now live shows every Friday night at youtube.com slash notsam. It really is a thrill to be here. It's Independence Day in the United States of America. And I thought to myself, Sam, what can you do to celebrate Independence Day on Not Sam Wrestling. Well, what I could do is I could find me a legend of the independence and celebrate him on Independence Day. And so that's what I did. The man's name is Mike Quackenbush. I would hope that a lot of you, and I personally, I would hope that all of you know who Mike Quackenbush is. But for those of you that don't, Mike Quackenbush is uh, maybe... The If you haven't heard of him, he's probably the, the most important legend that you haven't heard of. Mike Quackenbush uh, started wrestling in the mid-90s on the independent scene. And when I say mid-90s, I mean early to mid-90s, 94-ish. Um, he started wrestling on the independents uh, and really, throughout the 90s, started to develop a major name for himself. This is a guy who, in that era, and for those of you that grew up around the same time that I did, you know, you know, you've got to know the name. I mean, this is a guy who was uh, very well known for his matches with another guy named Reckless Youth. Reckless Youth in the 90s was the quintessential next guy. Reckless Youth was the name that was on the independence that you were waiting to pop up. You could see him in ECW, WCW, but you were really waiting for him to pop up in WWE. And he never ended up popping up in any of those three. WCW, ECW, WWE. So that was one of the things that I talked to Mike Quackenbush about. What 
happened with Reckless Youth, but uh, more importantly for Mike Quackenbush, it was the journey of Quack, Mike Quackenbush, who also never ended up in ECW, never ended up in WCW, never ended up in WWE, despite the massive name that he was building for himself across the independents in the, throughout the entire 90s. In 2002, he decided uh, that he wanted to perform the way he wanted to perform, and the way that he wanted to do that was to start his own promotion. That's a little promotion you might have heard of called Chikara. Mike Quackenbush, one of the founders and the head to this day of Chikara, an organization that has certainly revolutionized the way wrestling is presented across the world, in my personal opinion, uh, in terms of the kind of fantasy-based storytelling, in terms of the uh, niche-based performances. And I say niche-based in the sense that that it's not this constant quest to get to a bigger building and a bigger building and a bigger building. It's it's to make the show about the product and allow the audience to be what the audience is. And I think that that's a really uh, revolutionary way of thinking. Uh, as a surprise, I mean, Mike Quackenbush went through many injuries. Uh, I believe he retired in 2013 and ended up coming back. I, I might have my years off a little bit. I know when he was a kid and he first started wrestling, he fractured his skull um, but in the last year or so, he's been popping up a lot, and that's because he's been at the WWE Performance Center. He's been uh, asked fairly regularly to come in as a guest coach at the WWE Performance Center. A lot of you, if you Google him, one of the first things that'll come up, probably even before Chikara, is you guys will see him in the video that they did with Alexa Bliss training. He was the guy that uh, trained with Alexa Bliss at the Performance Center. But before that, I mean, a plethora of guys came through Chikara and came through Mike Quackenbush's wrestling school. At the same time that he was becoming this legend of of independent wrestling, uh, he was also branching out. You know, he ended up publishing uh, over half a dozen books. So from 1998, he was writing for wrestling magazines. In 1998, three or four years into his career, he started writing a column for one of the wrestling magazines, not newsletter, magazines that you would see on the shelf. Uh, he now does a podcast called Kayfabe 2.0 and his newest book as well, as well as his YouTube channel. And they're all targeted not to wrestling fans, but to potential wrestlers, which to me as a fan might even be more interested than the stuff that's targeted to me. You know, I mean, the, the amount of insight that you get on the wrestling business, watching product uh, that is designed for uh, people coming up in the business is amazing. So this guy, when I, and, and he does this all because he loves wrestling. My favorite conversations here on the podcast are the ones that we have with people, uh, from the world of pro wrestling who just love wrestling. I, I, I end up talking to people sometimes who I realize that if we weren't talking about them, we'd just be talking about wrestling. You'll hear in this conversation, I could have talked to Mike Quackenbush for, you know, 150 hours because we could have just sat down and talked about wrestling. And that's what I love, that sometimes you can see that these conversations can easily go from interview to just talking about a shared passion. And that's the same passion that we all share. That's why you download a a podcast called Not Sam Wrestling. 
Because when wrestling's not on TV, it's still cycling through your brain the same way it's cycling through my brain. And if you're driving around, if you're going to the gym, if you're walking around, if you're at work, whatever you're doing, if you're at school, you want to hear more about wrestling. You want to hear people's opinions about wrestling. You want to hear uh, the journeys that people had within wrestling. I thought it's super important that everybody that listens to Not Sam Wrestling know the who, what, why, where, when, and how. I think those are all the questions of Mike Quackenbush. So that's what today is all about. A legend of the independence on Independence Day. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest on Not Sam Wrestling this week is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Quackenbush. Here he is. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. Unbelievably, somehow for the first time, on the podcast, uh, I say that because I can't believe it's taken this long. The legend is here. Mike Quackabush. Quack, what's the haps, man? Hey, thanks for having me on. I, too, can't believe it's taken us this long to have an awesome team up. Do you, so I was, and I, I've, you know, been familiar with you forever and uh, have watched your interviews and then, you know, more recently was watching your interviews uh, knowing that we were going to do this thing. Do you, have you fine-tuned your broadcasting voice, is your voice something that you train to kind of, because you enunciate words so, I mean, it feels like deliberately, and as a broadcaster, I kind of pick up on that stuff immediately. Is that something that you worked on from a young age, or is that something that just comes naturally? Well, you're the first person who's ever picked that out. I had a speech impediment when I was a child. Huh. Cause, and yeah. I took years and years of speech therapy because people couldn't understand me. So my entire speaking voice is an affectation to a degree because it took me until third grade to be able to speak clearly. Wow. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I never take for granted when people have kind of speak perfectly the way you do. There usually is something that's deliberate about it. I feel like as human beings, we expect everybody else to speak perfectly, but none of us do. So, <laughs> so there's usually a reason why it's happening. Yeah. Well, that's very astute, Sam, yeah. Well, and yeah, and as somebody in, in radio who's never had a radio voice, the minute I hear them, I go, how do you get that? <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, I mean, you've been a part of the wrestling world for 25 years now? Is that right? That's right. 25 yeah. years. At what point did you start to get the respect that you've kind of uh, uh, risen to now, to the point where people who know wrestling kind of look at you as really one of the great teachers in terms of not only in-ring stuff, but unique psychology. Well, not that there isn't always somebody who's ready at the drop of a hat to take the piss out of me, but um, <laughs> I think <laughs> this new phase of my career, which, which feels like a weird thing to settle into, where what I do in the ring is now kind of secondary to everything I do outside of the ring, there's a long period of time where everything's really just focused on those 10 to 12 minutes between the bells and the performance that I leave on stage. But now it's evolved into a lot of other areas. And part of that happened because right around the time of my 20th anniversary, give or take, I was lucky enough to kind of have a bit of wish fulfillment in that I got to team with the guy who inspired me at the very beginning of my story, Jushin Thunder Liger. And in that match, which I had privately thought, this will be the last match that I wrestle. I did not say that publicly to anyone, but yeah. in the course of that match very early on, I shatter my right leg. 
Oh. I'm coming off the corner post with a giant moonsault, and my legs smash into the metal retaining barrier. Oh. And I just split my right leg in, in a horrific way. And if not for the pads that I had on, so I had a neoprene brace with compression straps and a kick pad that was tied tight. Uh-huh. If not for that, I would have just started gushing blood immediately. Now, of course, later in the back when I took all my pads off, that's when the real horror movie began. But um, after that, there's a period of about three years where I, I don't perform in the ring. In fact, most of those three years, I walk with a cane because I have an instability through my leg up into my lower back. When and you I were walking, felt like I would fall. When you were walking with a cane, did you try to make that super private because you, you know, didn't want wrestling fans to see you in this vulnerable position? Or have you been, are you, were you comfortable with the reality of what was going on? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe in the first week or two, I was really uncomfortable with it. I just thought, how did I get here in right. my life? But then I realized, um, in a way, this is the explanation then. I, no one's ever going to say, hey, man, why don't you wrestle anymore? They just have to watch me walk into the room. And they're like, <laughs> oh, it's probably that. Yeah. Um, so it did save me from a lot of uh, awkward conversations. But uh, And part of it was just that in my pigheadedness, I should have sought medical attention immediately thereafter. And uh, a whole lot of my stories contain this footnote by the asterisk. It says, Mike was a pig-headed young man. Uh, so, <laughs> and then here we are. Podcast. That's really it. That's the whole journey. Well, you, I, I've been fascinated by you specifically recently because, like, when you pay attention to what you're doing outside of the ring, you know, there's, like, 150,000 wrestling podcasts out there. It's really difficult to figure out what your niche is going to be and and how you're going to differentiate yourself. There's every wrestler, you know, in the world now because wrestling in the late 90s and early 2000s was so popular. Everybody from that era has a book in them. Everybody has all this stuff. You uh, have taken a pretty major risk, I think, uh, but I like because you do play to your expertise and you play to an audience that isn't necessarily being played to directly in the sense that you wrote a book for wrestlers, not for wrestling fans. And the podcast that you do, Kayfabe 2.0, is advertised as being for wrestlers, for people who are training to wrestle. It's about wrestling psychology, and it's not really meant to— I mean, I'm sure there's lots of fans that listen just for the insight, but it's not really meant to inform fans of the business as much as it is to talk to— wrestlers who are in training right now and mm. explain psychology to them, which isn't an audience that's being tapped into at all, I don't think. Right, and I think it serves two purposes. One, as you alluded to, right, there's nothing that prevents wrestling fans from listening to it. Right, right of like, course. They can download it whenever they want. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. Um, for a long time, I-, I was of that very conservative camp about we must protect the secrecy of wrestling at all costs. But there's a period of time, like around the turn of the millennium, where that starts to kind of become obsolete. Yeah. Um, everything you could possibly want to know about the inner workings of our craft, probably at most three clicks deep on Wikipedia, and it's all right there. Right. So it's foolish to try and maintain that. Now, I'm not saying we need to do away with mystique or the fun of that. That's not what I mean. But to try and pretend as if it's not there can be a little insulting to our audience. And now I'm kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum where I believe the more wrestling fans understand the demands of performance, 
the more they will actually appreciate what we make. It won't ruin the experience for them, which is what I hear as the counterpoint to my argument. I believe they will have a greater appreciation for the craft. So it serves that purpose. The other speaks a little bit to how I began in wrestling. When I break in, I have my first match while I'm still a high school senior, mm -hmm. May 20th, 1994. And I go about three years thereafter where I have no mentor, I have no trainer, no coach, nobody. And this, to an extent, it predates the ubiquity of the internet. So if I can't find it in the yellow pages of my phone book in my hometown, right? Like that's the end of my resources as an 18 year old. Right. That's what's available to me. So I just had to make it up as I went. But in that period of time, I had so many terrible injuries. I make so many mistakes because there's, there's no guidance for me. These days, I'm out there, as much as I perform anyway, I'm out there teaching. I go all over the world, whether I teach one seminar, I teach a week's worth of seminars, whatever. And I find more and more people who are like me when I began. They don't have someone to mentor them or their mentor or coach isn't as available to them as they might need when they're a nascent performer. And I thought, I don't want someone else to waste their most important and formative years doing this without the kind of guidance I know I desperately needed if I have a platform to deliver it to them. And that's a lot of what inspired me to make Kayfabe 2.0, to write the book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, or this new thing I just launched last week called Till We Make It. What's Till We Make It? So Till We Make It is my new YouTube channel, ah. which is short instructional videos, the kinds of things that I don't think are being talked enough uh, about in wrestling schools like hey how do you get your gear and your mask to be clean after you perform? <laughs> you can't throw that stuff in a laundry machine you Dude, can't that's so genius because like you understand that this generation literally like before we were recording this show i was on youtube trying to learn about a video editing app that somebody just told me about this morning and i'm like well you know obviously that's the place that you go. I'm not going to go into a like a like a tech store. I'm not going to go find somebody. There's videos explaining how to do this. When when I bought a, a a shirt that the safety tag was still on, I said I'm not going all the way back to the store. I'm going to find a YouTube video <laughs> that tells me how to get the safety tag off with stuff you find around the house. So the mm -hmm. fact that like there's inside wrestling stuff that's not so like ooh this is juicy, but really like if I'm just starting to be a wrestler and I got some sweat and my mask stinks, mm -hmm. do I just throw it in, and I just throw it in the washing machine and now I don't have any money. I'm like a new wrestler and I just ruined my gear because I didn't know right. how to clean it properly. Let me look up on YouTube. Oh, there actually is a series for this. Yeah. So I do hope that it, it fills a void with useful and educational material, but it's always kind of informed by my general feeling that the better educated fans are about every aspect of the art form, the more they will appreciate the end result. And maybe it will be a bit of a counterpoint to what sometimes feels like a very pessimistic or negative discourse online. Right. No, yeah, totally. Now, so you start when you're 18. And I read when you're 19, you fractured your skull. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, that sounds like, and you hear that, you know, kind of seldom. That's not the most common wrestling injury in the world, at least that you hear about. But that sounds to me like the most horrifying injury in the sense that like that what are you gonna put your head in a cast like your skull is broken now not only do you realize that that can happen but you realize that that and worse can happen I would imagine just the pain of it of going through it is unbelievable uh what is it like to fracture one skull and how at 19 you're a year in 
right? This is the moment. Right. If any, if you can quit at any moment, it's the time where you haven't put all that much equity into it just yet. How do you at 19 decide, I'm going to let my skull heal, and then I'm just going to keep moving? Well, Sam, the answer is stupidity. <laughs> is that, <laughs> is this, are we getting back to the pig-headedness? <laughs> so, uh, I think depending on when wrestling found you in your life, this is a, an arc you will relate to. Mm-hmm. Pro wrestling captures your imagination in a way, and then it slowly begins to infect and corrupt every other part of your life. <laughs> That's right. right. Yep. Yep. Your school projects are suddenly about pro wrestling. Suddenly, you've got a stack of magazines that are about professional wrestling. Your online diet contains a robust amount of pro wrestling conversation, news, rumors, downloads, and streams. And it's all you talk about suddenly. Your social circle's defined by who will tolerate it. Your significant others are in... You'll find them only based on their ability to humor your obsession with professional wrestling. And then it's just crept into every nook and cranny of your life. And I very much was in that place where I saw myself through that lens. My identity was informed by whether or not I was a professional wrestler. And I remember, this was many years ago, I had never been asked this question before in an interview. They had said to me, what would you be if you were not a professional wrestler? And without missing a beat, the exact answer I gave was a failure. That's great. Uh, It it is the thing that, uh, I know this sounds maybe pretentious, but I really do think that this is what I was put on the earth to do. And I must contribute in some way. And it's not doesn't always mean that I'm in the ring. It doesn't mean I'm always doing job A or B or C. But in some way, shape, or form, this is the one thing that takes advantage of my very limited talent set, Sam. So I've got to keep doing it because I don't know what else I'd put on a resume. Yeah, the infection is real. I remember uh, when in being in high school and having mm-hmm. art projects where there was some creativity to kind of do what you want and and one project was a collage like create a a mixed media collage right that that speaks to something that's that's in your soul or whatever and i had to and and you know going through public schools you would think it would be for nefarious purposes but i had to sneak barbed wire into the school in my book bag because my project was uh uh it, it was all pictures of like cactus jack in fmw with like canvas and then i had to like lacquer the barbed wire so that it wasn't pointy anymore when i stuck that to the thing so i mean i get it you can't it just once it's in your head if the passion is real it, it just can't escape even if your head is broken right you must find an outlet for it i think you know when, I, when I'm still in junior high, that's what compelled me to be a backyard wrestler. Right. I had no outlet for this thing that I loved, and it had to be expressed. It has to be expressed in multimedia art projects. It has to be expressed however it comes out of you. But so you were a backyard wrestler then. I mean, if I'm doing the math, this was the early 90s that you were a backyard wrestler. This was not like the late 90s sort of backyard wrestling boom. This was before backyard wrestling was sort of a, a big cultural movement. Yeah, uh, me and a gang of my ignorant friends start doing that in December of 1991 down wow. at a park near my house. <laughs> so until we would always, you know, be chased away by the police. Right, right. It's like skateboard kids <laughs> except wrestling. Right, yeah. yeah. We, we just did it in singlets. <laughs> did you really do it in singlets? Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So when did you feel uh, as a professional wrestler – that you had had kind of found the ground beneath your feet. How many years into it were you like, okay, you know, I'm starting to build a fan base? Because also, 
90s independent wrestling, while there was this kind of boom, much like Backyard, it was a little later than 94, but that boom happened right alongside, you know, the Monday Night Wars and the Attitude Era and all the other booms that were going on in wrestling. And you heard about a lot more in magazines and stuff like that. But this idea that now with YouTube, everybody has access to every wrestler, it was simply not the case. So building a fan base on the independent scene and building a buzz about yourself in the, you know, mid 90s was not anywhere near as easy as it is today. Not to say it's easy, but it was just much harder then. So mm-hmm. when did you start to go, okay, you know, I'm not in WWE, I'm not in WCW, but I am a professional wrestler. This is what I do. Maybe it's a long-running case of imposter syndrome. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I, I had even started my own training facility and ran my own wrestling organization for years and still kind of felt like I wasn't in professional wrestling. Wow. Um, it, when I was coming up, you know, it, the, the early and mid-90s are this interesting transition period where what I would call the territory system era of wrestling becomes the independent circuit. Mm-hmm. The territories go away, right? And kind of like the last bastion of that is as AWA and world class are disappearing in the very beginning of the 90s. And then and I know a lot of people look at ECW as kind of the measuring stick for this. When Paul Heyman comes in and sort of takes control from Todd Gordon and it goes from Eastern to extreme, suddenly there is a different playing field that didn't exist before. The territories are now entirely gone and the independent circuit has its own. I don't know what you want to say there. Um like its own sphere begins to exist. And mm-hmm. that's roughly as I'm coming in, 1994. Mm-hmm. So there's this outgoing generation of performers that I cross paths with in every VFW hall, every high school gym, every semi-air-conditioned barn in rural West Virginia, where the uh, old ways of doing things are starting to be done away with. And yet, because those are the veteran performers that I'm on cards with, it seems as if... Those are the metrics for success. Um, well, how many sellouts have you ever drawn, kid? Right. Oh, well, who did you ever beat? Oh, what do you mean you've never been in the ring with so-and-so? Oh, you've never even been on TV? Like, why are you even talking in this locker room? Go to some other locker room. Don't waste our time with your existence. <laughs> and one of the weird shifts, you know, some of the work that I do down at the Performance Center has really brought this into crystal clear cl- clarity for me is that there used to be such value on the ability to walk to the ring completely unprepared and improvise a performance from beginning to end. And that skill set is not only just like kind of going away, it's irrelevant to the way the top players make what they make. When I watch an NXT TV taping, mm-hmm. that skill set is called on 0% of the time. The thing that the veteran generation used to tell me was the difference between being a pro wrestler or, as they would say, being a ballerina. Ballerinas choreograph. Pro wrestlers walk to the ring and wrestle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came up with, with a generation of fellow independent wrestlers where choreography is exactly how we survived. We would sit in the back. We would work out the beats. We thought we could perform this, but that's too dangerous. We can't do that. Or that needs more practice before we walk it out on stage. Okay, A, B, C, right through to Z. Let's walk it out there and see how it's received. Only to come back and be told, what are you guys, two ballerinas? You're not pro wrestlers. Um <laughs> So it took me a really long time to get over that feeling of like, I'm not doing it right. Right. Yes. I'm just, I don't know. Like I'm just some dumb kid that's making it all up. I've been making it up since I snuck in the door on day one. 
I'm just making it up in a new version now. Oh, now I make it up, but people listen to me. So did you ever, was it, would you ever have a thought in your head where it's like, you know what? I got to bulk way up. I got to be a 300 pound guy and I got to make people believe that I'm a real life tough guy. I'll beat you up in a bar because I think that what you're talking about is a psychology that goes right along with what you had that you just said in the beginning of your career, which is protect the business. You know, that's what's going to get fans interested when the reality is that by the time the mid nineties rolled around, the internet is, is so, you know, kind of everywhere that everybody knows what's going on. The idea of sports entertainment, and this is not true sports in the sense of, of sports, 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 that, you know, the, the, the results have been predetermined and we're open with that. Everybody knows that now. So, I think that fans all were aware of that. I mean, I remember at eight years old being aware that I'm not watching a traditional fisticuffs battle. I'm right. watching something <laughs> else, whatever it is. Like, it never occurred to me, real, fake. It, it just never occurred to me. I'm watching pro wrestling, and that's what pro wrestling is. But I think that what happened was your generation was the first to embrace that and do kind of a more athletic, choreographed style. And because the fans aren't in a position where they're being tricked anymore. Like we're not mm -hmm. that, that we all accept that and actually enjoy it more because now we're seeing these feats of, of superhuman athleticism that are only possible in this way where two people are cooperating, but we're still not exactly sure how they're doing it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Look, even though I know David Blaine is tricking me, right. That doesn't mean I fail to get a sense of wonder when he levitates off the street. Right. Like, <laughs> I am still filled with wonder. I right. still get what I want from the performance. And I still laugh and cheer and boo, even though I am 99% sure the Harlem Globetrotters are going to beat the Washington Generals <laughs> every time they come to town. Right. It does not diminish my enjoyment of it one bit. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. So, but but were you ever tempted to go, you know what, um, when you're young and mm. the people who are older than you and more successful than you are telling you that you're doing it wrong, were you tempted to bulk way up and, and just become this tough guy who looks like, you know, and, and start wrestling in a style where it looks like and it feels like, oh, he's this tough guy that can beat up anybody and this is real? Well... In my ignorance and my absence of a coach or mentor, I thought, well, the only way my body changes that dramatically is if I take steroids, mm. which I wasn't interested in. Right. So I thought, well, I got to work with what I got. Right. But the flip side was I thought I could be tougher. And so I found a guy when I was going to the University of Pittsburgh who these days we would call him a mixed martial artist. But back then that that term really had not yet been coined. Like there'd only been two or three ultimate fighting championships. This predates MMA as a thought process or a genre unto itself. And uh, for the most part, this guy just beat the living crap out of me. <laughs> but he did toughen me up. There's no two ways about that. And every once in a great while, he would teach me something semi-dangerous that I could use to protect myself if something went south. Uh, if I was out there in the ring and somebody, they didn't like me or they thought they're going to make an example of this skinny white kid who does his flips in the ring in his bad homemade costume, <laughs> well, at least I wasn't totally defenseless out there because of this guy. But more times than not, he just sent me home in tears. Right, right. As 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 is the business model at the time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you did, you know, the first part of your, when you started really building a buzz on the independence uh, in, in the mid to late 90s, uh, a lot of what you were doing was the stuff you're doing with Reckless Youth. And 
I feel like that stuff was really your names were kind of the first names for me that kind of made me aware that there was a, a world outside of WCW, WWE, ECW. It's like, yeah, but then there's these other guys. There's the there's Quackenbush. There's Reckless Youth. I think uh, Loki was starting to pop up then, and Xavier was popping up then, and there were there were these names, and you would you would go to find local shows and realize there's all this amazing stuff happening. But as far as Reckless Youth goes, I know that he was in uh, developmental for a period yeah. of time. Uh, why do you think? Because this has always been something I've I've been curious about, and I've never talked to him, but. Why do you think that he never ended up with as much buzz as he had in WWE? This is fascinating that you're bringing this up because I was just reminiscing with an old friend right before we jumped on about this exact topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember like Reckless Youth was – that was the name. I mean, he, he I feel like, you know, so much of his attitude uh, uh, matched what the culture was then. There was the yes. coolness factor about him, and then there was the athleticism, and he, he captured the crowd. I watched him – do one show where, like, it was in front of, I don't know, probably 55 people, and he got everybody to sing Kung Fu Fighting with him <laughs> as he was in the middle of his match. And I'm, I'm going right. like, well, yeah, he was, back then, you know, the next guy when yes. it came to the independence. Why do you suppose mm -hmm. that, that he never ended up doing anything in WWE? So, um, as you may recall, he has a developmental deal with WWF when their system was in Memphis under Terry Golden. So this is long before there's an NXT or an FCW or any of that. Mm -hmm. um, so they're partnered with Terry Golden's Memphis Championship Wrestling, and they're shipping their developmental talent as well as guys who they want to sharpen up. So at the same time, Reckless Youth is going there straight from the independents, and they're grabbing Ron Killings. They're grabbing the first time around American Dragon, Brian Danielson, and Spanky. Um, Jim the Anvil Neidhart is there, supposedly getting sharpened back up before he comes back to the main stage. Um, coming over from WCW is Stephen, now William Regal, is in developmental alongside Tom. Tracy Smothers is there, the Blue Meanie is there, it Jasmine is, St. Clair. It is so wild when you list these names that this is all one generation. I mean, yeah. when you talk about Brian Kendrick, you know, Daniel Bryan, and William mm. Regal, and Jim Neidhart, and Reckless Youth, and, like, and you're just sitting there going, this was what it looked like then. Yeah. Amazing. He He's down there for a period of a year right after he got married. So he moves away from his new wife. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a miserable scenario for him. Mm -hmm. it, I, know, I know it was for her, and I'm sure it was for him. You know, we would catch up on the phone once a week or whatever, just, hey, man, what's it like? How is it going down there? This is exciting. This is the biggest opportunity of your career. And we'd had a couple brief flirtations where – were we going to go to ECW as a tag team? We mm -hmm. had this thing about coming to Atlanta to do something for the cruiserweight division if we were willing to move to Georgia. And this seemed like the big thing. And they would, every couple months, come along and they would say something different. And they'd say, you know what? Could you grow your hair out so it's shoulder length? And as soon as it would get there, they'd be like, you know what? Shave your head now. <laughs> do you think you could put on 25 pounds of muscle in the next couple of months? So he would work overtime, you know, eating crazy amounts of calories and working out like a maniac. And then they'd say, you know what? I think we liked you better when you were trim. Could you cut all that weight back down? And they played that game with him so many times, and it frustrated him to no end. Uh -huh. At the end of his initial term, they sat down with him and Ron Killings. They, were both, they both came up on the same day. And they said, uh, look, if you guys want to stay with us for another year, 
you're going to be on Monday Night Raw. But, uh, you know, if you don't want to re-sign, you know, thanks for everything. You know, we wish you well in your future endeavors as it goes. And by this point, I think Reckless had just been fed up. And uh, that Friday, he says, no, I'm not re-signing. That Monday, as he's coming back home, R-Truth walks out on Monday Night Raw. Oh, my God. And I don't think, no, having known him personally for as many years as I did, mm -hmm. I don't think he ever recovers from that blow. His passion oh. for the craft just evaporates. And from that moment on, it's really only about the money. It's not about having a great match. It's mm. not about an opportunity. It's not about how, what influence he's going to have on the circuit. It's about, is this making me money? Because if not, I'm not leaving my house. That's, I mean, it's a tragedy. Yeah. What do you take yes. from that at the time? Like, you know, you're watching this and you're kind of, uh, in a way, I'm sure, living vicariously through him. And you see that yeah. this didn't work for him. And you see what he goes through. Do you go, I mean, I know you didn't grow up a WWE fan, but I'm sure... You know, on some that that still is and was the mark of success to a certain degree. So, do you sit there and go, you know what? I just watched what that did to him. I'm going to stick to my own lane over here. I'm not even going to worry about that. Or do you? How do you react to that? And and how does it? How does your career get impacted by what happened to Reckless? Well, when he comes back, I felt like I don't even know who this guy is. Wow. He is so utterly transformed by that experience. Um, we relate to each other less and less. And even though we found the Wrestle Factory and Chikara together, mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, he vanishes. He does a few sporadic appearances as the technician Tom Carter in the very early days of Ring of Honor. Yes. And then just starts no-showing his appearances everywhere and disappears off to regular life where, you know, he's got a beautiful family and uh, he's a very accomplished accountant outside of wrestling. But yet when he came back, he was a completely different person. And the guy who used to be bosom buddies with me was increasingly difficult to relate to, like the times in wrestling, because I grew up as a fan of the fan of the WWF, or excuse me, the era of the WWF that I am a fan of is the new generation era. Mm -hmm. I come in right after Hogan leaves. <laughs> and as the new generation transforms into the attitude era, uh -huh. I think this is no longer my wrestling. So you um, love, I mean, arguably, and I get, this is like, you know, I love the new generation because a lot of that was, you know, what I grew up with. I mean, I remember yeah. it so sort of vividly and absolutely was glued to every second of it. But historically, one of the least popular times in WWE history. And I'm always right. fascinated when I meet people who, no, 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 no. The new generation was it for me. And I've, I don't think I've ever heard when the new generation became the Attitude Era, that's when I knew I was done. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the over-romanticization of the Attitude Era always leaves me flabbergasted. Uh -huh. It is one of the dullest and least interesting eras in modern professional <laughs> wrestling. And when I hear people try to defend it, uh -huh. uh, I just sit there. I, I fold my arms. And I start shaking my head, and I'm like, let me tell you about the ways in which I love Max Moon, the one, two, three kid, and the Repo Man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with you. There's a reason why my, you know, Jack's Bone Crunching Figures collection is in a box and my Hasbros are all out on display. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> obviously, I'm right there with you. Um, but so, so... So you're not sitting there, you know, as all this is going on, the attitude error is happening. You're not sitting there going like, ah, if only to be a part of that. You're you're probably I mean, if you like the new generation and stuff like that, you're probably more attracted 
to WCW's cruiserweight division and maybe mm-hmm. some of the more wrestling centric stuff that was going on in ECW. Yeah, boy, did you just nail it there. You're exactly right, Sam. And then because that wasn't enough to fill my voracious appetite because it's crept into every nook and cranny of my life now, I became a really avid tape trader. Yeah. If I could get my hands on the latest Super Jacob, I had to have it. If I could get my hands on Triple Mania from AAA, I had to have it. Why did you never end up in ECW? So there was a time when, uh, verbally anyway, there was an offer on the table that we would go in as a tag team. Mm-hmm, right. And they brought Reckless in for a weekend tryout. He wrestles Supernova on the first night. And I'm struggling to remember who he wrestles on the second night. But uh, what he came back with was, hey, look, we've been told that we need to go and get matching gear. Our color scheme is supposed to be blue and black. They've asked for us to put on 10 pounds of muscle. We got to get into the gym hard. That's what they want. And if so, they have a tag team slot carved out for us where we're going to come in as these young, fresh faced guys that behave like heels. But Tom and I, we led very similar lifestyles in this way. He said, what I observed that weekend on the road with them was a rampant drug culture. And you and I will be completely ostracized because we lead very clean lives. We will not fit in. These people are going to, they're going to think we're squares. We're just going to be the complete aliens of the locker room. And he said, I think if we take this opportunity, we're going to be deeply unhappy. I think we should say no. And we did. Huh. And then about two months later, those guys in blue and black, the uh, young, fresh-faced indie guys who behave like heels, Christian York and Joey Matthews, showed up on ECW. Wow. And you knew that was your spot when you saw it. I, I believe that it was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that feels like what you were going for. When ECW goes away, mm-hmm. is that sort of like a shock to your system in the sense that while I wasn't accepting that opportunity, like that's, that's a big, that, 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 that's a spot that feels attainable, right? You know, maybe maybe that wasn't the right time, but maybe in the future you'd end up in ECW. And as that as that promotion becomes a more national spot, you're going like, okay, well, you know, now it's a spot to really make a living and they're on TV and they're on pay-per-view. When ECW goes away, does that scare you in the sense that, oh, wow, like the for the first time in five years or more, probably maybe the first time in 10 years, the wrestling world is actually starting to shrink, not grow. Yeah. And because I was an ECW fan, right? Like I, I never missed a week of their TV, right? I followed what they did fastidiously. Um, even, even knowing, oh man, I could have been there playing with those guys. In no way did that make me less of a fan after the fact. Did you ever regret that, by the way? Before we get into the fears of ECW going away, when you were a fan of ECW and you go, okay, I know logically why I turned that down. I know the the the, the realism of why I turned that down, but when I'm watching as a fan and when I'm seeing these great storylines play out and when I'm watching these great matches happen in front of me and these great characters evolve into what they're becoming, does it pain you at all to go, ah, I wish, I wish there was a way that it would make sense that I was a part of that? I don't think I ever went through that. And I don't think I felt that way about passing on the move to Atlanta to join the cruiserweight division either. Uh-huh. Um, they were just the wrong moves for my life mm-hmm. at that time. And um, I, I don't know, in all, the, in all the other ways in which I was fairly ungrounded as a wrestler, I think I was always grounded enough as a person to know that is not the right fit for me. And the right fit will come along. I think what I underestimated was, you know, maybe for that to be true, I'm going to have to make it myself. And you did. You know, and, and I guess that would be the, the natural lead into you making it yourself. But was, was I mean, ECW shuts down in like 2001 and Chikara's 
you start up Chikara in 2002, right? Exactly. Yeah. So was that kind of a response to being like, okay, this is for real. ECW is gone. This is a wake up call. You know, WCW has become what WCW has become in the early 2000s. And that was, you know, gone. I mean, by 2002, it was gone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you sit there and go, well, you know, WWE is, is what WWE is. It's already overflowing. They've already got too many people on their roster than they know what to do with. If I want to do things the way I want to do them, I'm going to have to create Chikara. More or less, that's it yeah. in a nutshell. What you just said. That, that vacuum that opens up when ECW and WCW are gone, mm-hmm. it feels so daunting to everyone you know, that's not at the very top level in WWF. It's this chasm that opens up. Now the industry leader is infinitely far away. There aren't those stepping stones, right? I could go from ECW to WCW to the industry leader. if I, Right, I could see how those stones line up for me to skip across the water. But now they've sunk. They're gone. And in that chasm, what happens in that vacuum, there's a bunch of companies that emerge almost immediately trying desperately to be the next ECW. Right. Like WWF is mainstream radio. Someone else wants to be the alternative radio station. And they're all, whether it's XPW, all these companies start coming along trying desperately to ape that general edginess of ECW. But and that's as a, monotonous. Yeah, but as a, as a fan, I was there for it. I remember when CZW huh? first started and I go, I got to get these tapes because maybe this will fill my ECW void. And, and at the time I was like, no, this isn't it. And I've actually like right. kind of you know, warmed up and then cooled off and then warmed up to CZW. I think, you know, CZW has done a pretty great job of figuring out who they are over the last, you know, 15 years outside of that ECW identity. But XPW is the same. I mean, XPW, I was like, okay, well, they got money and this is probably going to feel just like ECW. And it just wasn't. It was so clearly, you know, they found a couple of the elements, the, the hardcore, like you said, edginess of ECW. And they were just trying to mimic that over and over again. And you were like, no, 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 no. This isn't it. But to turn around and go, well, maybe we start a promotion that's not anything like ECW. Maybe we create an alternative that is so insane and fantasy-based that it will create its own fan base. And that, I feel like, is what Shakara kind of became and, and is still to this day. Right. I. I don't know that it was as conscious as let's make a counterpoint to what this latter day attitude era is like, yeah. where we're occasionally like, you know, showing a woman's exposed breasts on TV and the language is trending R rated um, so much as it, it's an expression of just the weird things that I love. It's growing up on nerd rock and Bronze Age comic books. And, and that's what comes out of me. But you have to be in a position where you're like, I'm doing this because this is the product I wish existed, which Mm -hmm. is a lot easier to do from a place of financial independence. You know, I think that a lot of people Mm -hmm. would mimic ECW, maybe partly because there's a passion for it. But in reality, you're going, I want my independent promotion to become a national promotion that makes millions of dollars. So I'm going to copy the stuff that worked before to to go out there and just go, yeah, I like really weird stuff. So that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) <laughs> you have to you have to be in a position where you're going, you know, as long as I can make a living, I'll be fine. I'm fine appealing to the people who like what this is. And if they don't like it or if it's not the most mainstream thing in the world and it never is, that's not the goal anyway. Um, this is going to sound like such an oblique reference, but I remember seeing a documentary as the comedy channel is becoming comedy central. Mm hmm. 
uh, about Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yes. I don't know if this speaks to your heart at all. But sure, I love Mystery Science Theater 3000. They'd asked Joel Hodgson. Yeah. They said, when you made this three-hour-long show where you and some puppets sit around mocking bad movies, who did you imagine you know, the audience to this would be? And Joel's answer to that was this. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Um, we never asked ourselves, who's going to watch this? We told ourselves, the right people will watch this. And right. that is really, from day one, the mantra of Chikara. My, to maybe offer two contrasting examples here, a couple years ago, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, I saw U2 on Lincoln Financial Field. Uh, according to online estimates, there were 102,000 people at that concert. Wow. Um, my favorite band is They Might Be Giants. Mm-hmm. I once saw They Might Be Giants in the Metropolitan Pittsburgh, where I was easily one of at most 50, maybe 30 people in the room. What I make is very much They Might Be Giants at Metropole and not at all you 2 on Lincoln <laughs> Financial Field. I tell myself always the right people will watch this. Yeah. Yeah, and and so how do you how do you continue to judge success for Chikara because that is a difficult thing even mentally, you know, to maintain as long as you've maintained that. We're talking about uh, you know over 15 years now. Chikara has mm-hmm. been in business and I I feel like has been successful to the extent that it's it's always part of the conversation and it's and it's uh uh it, it, you never hear about oh I don't know you know all, a lot of other promotions you hear about the ups and downs like oh mm-hmm. this was a good time for them this was a bad time Chikara feels like it's a constant it's it kind of burst onto the scene and has existed as a constant for all these years to you is that constant a measure of success is it how do you i don't know internally how do you measure whether or not your company is successful well i don't know that i know the answer to that sam um what you're asking is something i wrestle with mentally a lot you know uh to me the crazy risks that we've taken uh, as storytellers to me are like the real highlights when we do something that's incredibly outside the box. When I feel like I took, you know, wrestling used to fit neatly in this box and I've slowly started to push those boundaries out a little bit. Um, it's a story we did about time travel. It's a story that we did about an evil corporation taking us over. It's a movie that we filmed in secret. It's a weird citywide scavenger hunt that we conducted. Um, you know, it's a secret season that we filmed without anybody leaking anything onto the Internet so we could release it all at once. Mm. Whatever those weird things are, and they're not all financially successful. I can't pretend like, oh, man, and when that was over, you know what? I woke up and there was a leather sack on my front door <laughs> with a dollar sign spray painted on it. Uh-huh. Like, no way. No, absolutely not. Um, not all those risks pay off in financial rewards, but as long as it's always creatively fulfilling. And I always want to try to defy the expectations there was a period of time where every time I looked online for something about Chikara, it would say it would read like this, Chikara, comma, a comedy wrestling promotion. Mm-hmm. And I would think, is that what people think I make? I make a comedy wrestling product? Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm going to show you the most serious, dramatic, heart-wrenching, dark storytelling anybody in wrestling has ever done. Um, 
as long as I can always figure out what that expectation is or what the thing that's missing from wrestling overall is, and I can keep supplying it, then I feel like I'm doing something worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think people are, people still, there isn't any other that I can think of kind of storytelling that goes on, especially on the independence, the way the storytelling happens in Chikara. So I think it becomes very difficult to define. And when people say, you know, a comedy wrestling promotion, it's almost for lack of a better term. Or maybe it's just mental laziness and they just want to describe it as something. Um, It always felt like a slap in the face to me. Huh. Um, But I've realized why people come to that conclusion. If you've only ever seen two clips of Chikara, Mm -hmm. it's going to be the viral videos that went out because they were funny. Right. Like, that's what, you know, is getting all the clicks and the retweets and all that kind of stuff. So if that's your only window into what we make, I understand how somebody could come to that conclusion. And yet I couldn't help but feel like, no, I've got to redefine this a little bit. Yeah. And that's where it motivates you to start telling new stories and and increasing the drama, the the dramatic part of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And granted, long form storytelling, generally speaking, does not exist in wrestling. I know they're trying very hard and they do for the most part they do a wonderful job at NXT with that. Mm-hmm. Just look at what they did with Gargano and Ciampa. Incredible. Right? That's long form. Incredible. And yet all of us know what that feels like when we're watching short form stuff that develops an hour one of a three hour TV show, resolves an hour two, and is forgotten or not even referenced by hour three. It's mm-hmm. too ephemeral. There are people that want that longer arc. Because that's the stuff that attracted me, whether it was to the X-Files or the Sopranos or Lost or Dexter or This Is Us. Whatever that thing is that, that you watch, I'm in it for the long haul. Just like the Bronze Age comics I grew up reading. We have to always reference, you know what, this is the team of X-Men before that team. And you know who's coming after them? These guys. Um, that never-ending continuity is something not entirely unique to us, but one of the reasons that's that's fairly easy, I suppose you could say, is because we don't have a writing staff of dozens of people that turn over every six months. Mm-hmm. Who would you say are the uh, are the people that have come through Chikara that you look at now and are kind of the most proud of? Well, it's tough to say, you know, I'm proud of these people and not of these people, but yeah. in terms of ones that, if I was going to pull, pull back to more of a macro view of wrestling as a giant canvas, the people that have gone the furthest, perhaps, or to the, the greatest yeah. heights would include... Cesaro, mm-hmm. a graduate of the Wrestle Factory and developed at Chikara. Um, the current cruiserweight champion in WWE, Drew Gulak. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people outside of my Wrestle Factory who I also trained, like it's Alistair Black. Whether they're people who I just honed them character-wise to get them ready for the next step of their career, like Ruby Riot or Luke Harper. Um, or people that came to me very late in their career or through the work that I do at the Performance Center. The, here's a weird reality check about me. The most watched video of me anywhere in the world has been watched 1.5 million times mm-hmm. is like a 15 second clip of Alexa Bliss and I training together <laughs> at the performance center. It's not a match of mine. Right. It's not a speech I gave. Uh, it's not some, you know, impassioned plea for understanding about my misunderstood art form. It's Alexa Bliss rolling off my back and kicking my teeth. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Like, doesn't that show you the power of what the WWE really is and the machine that the WWE <laughs> yeah, is? Because, does. I mean, literally last night when I'm like, uh, you know, just going over and making sure there's, you know, nothing I'm forgetting to, to talk to you about or whatever and just seeing how people kind of define you and, and the various bios of you. So 
many times. It was, you trained Alexa Bliss at the Performance Center. And I was like, yeah, I, it, that was the thing, though. I mean, yes, he did, but there's 25 years before that. Right. <laughs> how did you How did you end up uh, at the Performance Center? Because I know you're not there full time, but I also know that, uh, you know, if you follow any kind of social media, we see you popping up uh, at the Performance Center and NXT live events uh, behind the scenes fairly frequently. Right, and I could be wrong here, but I think I have become the most frequent guest coach in the history of the Performance Center. Maybe I've got that wrong, but um, yeah, I, just through years and years of being around, I suppose, but just refusing to go away. <laughs> and someone who did graduate from my wrestle factory, uh, formerly known as Sarah Del Rey, but now yeah. just Sarah Amato, mm -hmm. she is the assistant head coach at the Performance Center. And three and a half, four years ago, I guess when they first started entertaining the idea of rotating a guest coach through, she had put forth my name. And because of her influence there, even parts of the curriculum I had taught her then became the curriculum at the WWE Performance Center. Wow. So the first time I walked in and watched them all doing the warm-ups, I said to Sarah, I said, oh, they warm up the same way we do. And she said, well, why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, until I, you know, and I, I probably have, as of this recording, worn out my welcome, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate, you know, every time I'm down there, really kind of just being given the reins. They say, well, you know, right now a big directive is bolder characters. You think you can help? Go on. We need your help. Um, you know, we really need more emphasis on the correct application of holds. Do you think you can help with that? Go on. Help. Um, and that's all been very, very validating. For, for a guy who, in, in many ways, my whole generation of independent wrestlers, Reckless Youth, uh, Christian York, Joey Matthews, all those guys, the only reason we became viable in pro wrestling is because on a May episode of Monday Night Raw in 1993, the one, two, three kid pinned Razor Ramon. You're right. So that, I mean, it comes down to that exact moment. I can tell you why we're in this, why we have an opportunity. And so even if I thought to myself, well, one day I want to go to the Super J Cup in New Japan, and that's the real goal. Uh, you know, I, I can't be facetious about it. It feels very validating when they ask me to come down to their state-of-the-art, almost science fiction-like playground in the Performance Center and say, go on, go make us some wrestling, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Is that something that you would like to do full-time should the opportunity uh, arise? Is that something where you'd go, you know, we were talking about moving to Georgia earlier. If they go, okay, you know what? You know, you, you, you've been a guest here so many times. Why don't you pack up, head to Orlando, and uh, and help us out uh, full-time? We've had that conversation more than a handful of times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, it always feels flattering when the most popular girl in school asks you to dance at prom. Uh, right now, it's not time for me to dance that dance with her. Um, maybe there's a time in the future where it will align better with my life. But that time isn't now. Nevertheless, it's always nice when the dance floor parts and she walks right up to you and says, could we dance? Yeah, I'm sure. But, but it is something you'd like to keep going back and, and doing what you're doing now. Yeah, and I think I have all kinds of different ways in which I can help if they're open to it. I do appreciate the fact that our approaches are almost diametrically opposed. Wrestling as business or product versus wrestling as craft and art. Right. And I'm very much at the end of the spectrum that says wrestling is an art form that is ever evolving. But the demands of running NXT or the WWE or, or any of the other really major organizations that are out there, they need to ship a weekly product. And that weekly product might be three hours long. It might be one hour long, whatever it is. But that weekly product has to ship. 
they labor under a whole different set of circumstances than what I can do at my boutique shop home at Chikara. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that our philosophies are somewhat diametrically opposed, amazingly, there have been very few quarrels on the dates we go out on. Nevertheless, I think I would require a longer learning curve to get good at what they make because I've had 25 plus years of experience making the other thing. But that's also what's kind of amazing about the performance center, not just the physical state of the artness of it all, but the people that are there and the fact that the, the WWE will say, you know, quack specialty is not just in the ring stuff, but the, the art of it. You can learn the art of it from this person over here. This person over here will teach you the, uh, the, the, the techniques of it. This person over here will teach you the business of it. And, and, you know, people who are able, I feel like, you know, obviously I've never trained there or anything like that, but I feel like when I look at the people who come through there and that are there every day, if you are a person that is able to process and take everything in, I mean, these guys have the potential, guys and girls have the potential to come out as some of the most well-rounded performers that the industry has ever seen, theoretically. I could not agree more. And the coaching staff down there represents such a spectrum. Terry Taylor, Norman Smiley, Robbie Brookside, Johnny Moss, Scotty Tuhati, Serena Deeb, all overseen by Matt Bloom. They've got people with a, an incredible diversity in their bodies of work and all of them available to you five days a week to help you get better at it's as if they don't have an they have an expert for everything they have an right. absolute expert for everything in addition to which you've got the guest coaches coming through so one of the last times i was down there steve kern who was skinner back in the uh, the new generation era and before that of course he's in the fabulous ones with stan lane so I'm, he begins but as i as we talked about i'm with you on the skinner thing that's skinner uh -huh. to me too yeah <laughs> right right and, and one, he could not be less like Skinner. Uh -huh. He is so well-groomed and unbelievably <laughs> polite. It will blow your mind. Um, and he has perfectly white teeth. So here I got to tell you this story uh -huh. if, for, to a fellow Skinner fan. Because, yeah. of course, what I wanted to know is, you have such perfect teeth. Did it drive you nuts to have that chewing tobacco in your mouth all the time as Skinner? And he said, I refused to put chewing tobacco in my mouth. So what that is, is I would take black licorice nibs and just chew them up in my mouth. That's what it was. He said, I like licorice, but I hate tobacco. That's incredible. That is, that is incredible. And isn't it like the nicest, most polite, like, no, I was chewing black licorice, but like portraying this. Oh, that's great. I love that. What yeah. a great tidbit. Um, has there been anybody that you've, you've worked with, you know, without going into detail that, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to? Is there anybody that you've worked with at the Performance Center that you sit there and you go, man, I knew this per I thought this person was good, but wow, this 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 person is fantastic. Oh, to be sure. There are times where m my opinion of someone has changed almost instantaneously. Like I would show up and I would think, well, to me, that person's a very one-dimensional performer. Mm -hmm. And then all you really have to do is watch them strut their stuff up close and you realize like, wow, I really had that peg wrong. Um, <laughs> I love those moments of enlightenment where I kind of get to see the whole picture because there are so many people that populate the world of professional wrestling. You're not going to have a personal interaction with them all. It's just impossible. It's mm -hmm. simply impossible. Um, but 
you know, there are people like, oh, I, I watched one of their matches once or, oh, I bumped into them years ago when they were just starting and I remember they stunk it up. And um, the, the reality is by the time that you get to the performance center, there is something about you that you do better than everybody else. And it's just a matter of letting that thing shine. That was something that I always thought was one of the many, many things that made Paul Heyman so brilliant uh, in his presentation of ECW was the laser-like focus he had on honing in on the one thing that made somebody unique amidst all others and his ability to enhance it. Yeah, yeah. And I still think that he's done that better than that specific trait. I think that Paul Heyman historically did better than anybody I've ever seen do this. Yeah, he is singularly talented when it comes to that. Um, and if I had to try and put a point on it, because I do get asked a lot about, so what is the thing, right? If I want to go to the Performance Center, if one day I want to compete for the industry leader, what is the thing that you see that runs through all the hundred plus people on the floor of that PC? And although this seems really generic, I mean it very sincerely, it is how driven they are. It is that nothing gets in their way of this relentless chase. And if for them that chase means by the end of the year, I will have 20 extra pounds of shredded muscle on my body. And that means I wake up at 6 a.m. every day to go to the gym and then I eat a steak. That's what I'm going to do. If the thing is, and for a lot of them, they come from other countries, many of whom speak very little, maybe zero English. If the roadblock to their success is I'm going to become fluent in a foreign language in the next six months, that is the thing that they attack relentlessly. And it's the drive that defines each and every one of them down there. And even those that have no background in wrestling, many of them don't. A great example, one of the kids down there I've worked with a whole lot is uh, Zia Lee. Have you seen Zia Lee? Yeah. She is the first uh, Chinese female to ever be in a Royal Rumble. She was on NXT TV a week or so ago. You, and you know what really, like, uh, when I really became a fan was I watched, I watched most of the uh, of the Performance Center Combine that they put on the on the network that mm, was like six yes. hours long or something like that. And like, you know, I'd see, I saw her in the Rumble. I've seen her in NXT and whatnot. And I'm like, yeah, she's, she's, she's good. I watched her at that Combine and like, you know, my world was rocked. I had no idea the athlete this person was. Yeah. And, and believe me, I think, uh, I think they are filming this right now. She's at home in China. Mm -hmm. I think they are trying to document a bit of her story as uh, she came up in a village that was overrun by crime. And she actually basically becomes the defender of her neighborhood and the small businesses and helps turn things around because she realizes from a young age being bullied, she needs to learn how to protect herself, her brother and her mother. And she becomes like a world class master of wushu kung fu. Um, I mean, you can't write her. That. No, right. You, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't make that up. Yeah. Um, just using her as an example, before she tries out for WWE, she's never seen one frame of professional wrestling in her life. Wow. Friends of hers urged her to go to the tryout as a possibility to kind of like rise up out of poverty from their poor village in China. Um, to where she is now with this just voracious appetite for it. And every time I see her, what's the new thing that you can teach me? Give me more. You cannot possibly load my brain up with enough of it while I am becoming better at speaking English, while I am learning an art form completely different from Kung Fu and from kickboxing, um, in a foreign land where I'm away from everyone I know, um, leaves me with such complete admiration for her just two years into her journey. And yet 
I feel like I came up with a group of veterans that just had no appreciation. They had no admiration for people like that young in their journey. And uh -huh. I hope that part of things, uh, of the whole world of wrestling as all of us, one greater fraternity in this weird world of sports entertainment that we're starting to eradicate so that we are bound together by the thing that we love and not separated by all the weird differences between us. Well, that seems like a good spot because I could honestly talk to you for nine hours about this stuff. Like, it's clear to me <laughs> that if I did not discipline myself, we would be here literally all day. I would put out like a 25-part podcast where it's just me <laughs> and you talking about wrestling and you and, and the whole thing. But I guess that's why you've been able to to branch off and do so many things inside this world. Um, of course, your your podcast, Kayfabe 2.0, you can... Uh, uh, You've you've got your book out. Chikara is of course you know is is still uh, doing what you guys do on that consistent basis. Um, I'm a fan, man, and I'm uh, I'm I'm super glad that you made the time uh, to talk to us here. And and we're I mean we've got to do this. I would think again and again and again because I, we've we've barely scratched the surface, and it's uh, already been an hour. Right on. No, thank you. This was such good fun chatting with you, Sam. And thank you for giving me the platform to reach out to all of your listeners, because even 25 plus years into this experience, having done thousands of matches, I've written eight books, <laughs> I've been all over the planet. I bet the vast majority of people out there listening are learning about me for the very first time right now because of you, Sam. Well, I mean, if that's true, I'm pretty flattered to be the messenger, but I also, uh, I look down on all of you, and uh, I feel like you have not done your wrestling history, and uh, I'm very disappointed that you did not know who this man was before we had this conversation. So that's how I feel about you, uh, the listeners who are being informed for the first time, but at least you're informed, right? Right on. I'm a skinny <laughs> white kid in a homemade costume. It's terrible. That's me. <laughs> that's exactly right. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. I know you guys hear me talk about it every week. The Not Sam Shills. It's the group to be a part of, and the only way to be a part of that group is by signing up at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. You know, for less than a dollar a week, you can be a Not Sam Show. Being a Not Sam Show gives you access to everything. You will get Not Sam Wrestling every single week early and ad-free. You can get all the video content your heart desires. Watch the State of Wrestling get recorded live. See the video every single week. Get the interview videos that we post here first every single week. You're going to get special bonus live shows. You're going to get special post shows for events like we did Stomping Grounds. We did Fighter Fest. You never know when I'm going to creep down to the Not Sam studio and give you guys a bonus show. We even do a show called Captive Audience where I bring somebody in from my life that's not necessarily a wrestling fan and I show them a pay-per-view. You guys get to watch along and explain, hear me explain anyway, why this stuff is so awesome. Plus exclusive merch and a whole lot more, including the interactive Discord room, the entire Not Sam Wrestling community. They come into the Discord room every day, all day, every wrestling show, every wrestling podcast. We talk about it all. Only in that Discord room, only available to Not Sam Shills. Become a shill today at patreon.com slash Not Sam Wrestling. It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling. Welcome to this week's State of Wrestling, the special Independence Day edition. You know how we do it here on the State of Wrestling. We break down the top five stories of the week 
according to yours truly, the last professional broadcaster, Sam Roberts. Uh, and we talk about him throughout the world of professional wrestling. Uh, of course, if you have any uh, comments, concerns, suggestions, feel free to hit us up uh, in the Discord room on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. You can send messages. You can do all sorts of stuff over there. As a matter of fact, um, we have a, a, a question uh, coming in this week from Casey Havich. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right, Casey. Casey Havich. Um, who says, uh, my submission for the state of wrestling topic is about Seth and Becky. I hate to be negative, but the Seth and Becky stuff on Raw this week made me cringe a bit, and I think it could hurt both characters. Their in-ring promo was super awkward. I don't really want to see that side of Becky. I want to see her kick ass. Same with Seth. I know you've talked about their relationship on screen before, but this week's Raw was too mush for me. Oh, too much mush for me. Casey. Okay. Well, Casey, we will talk about that, uh... This week here on the State of Wrestling, but all good things come to those who wait, and that's not story number five. Story number five this week was breaking. Breaking as I sat down to record this on Wednesday afternoon, the breaking news is John Cena gets another haircut. There is another new hairdo from John Cena. So we all were uh, horrified when we saw John Cena show up uh on WWE TV with his new big boy haircut, with his new adult man movie star haircut, which he said he liked. He went on the Today Show and he said, I like this haircut, so that's why I did it. Uh, as it turns out, he did it for a movie and left it. I think both are true. You know, he says he did it for a movie now. Clearly, he did it for a movie. But he stopped filming the movie a while ago and he left it, so I guess he liked it. That was the uh, the comb over, you know, when he doesn't... I don't think he really needs a comb over. But it just was not hustle tea, hustle loyal hustle tea, hustle loyalty respect. When somebody gets by uh, wearing jorts and having a true crew cut for all the years that John Cena did, it becomes jarring and earth shattering to see them with an adult man haircut, especially when they're still wearing jorts. There is something about wearing jorts and having an adult man haircut that really highlights the silliness that jorts bring to the table in 2019. However, that haircut is gone. He posted a video. Uh, WWE's Twitter account posted it as well. He spoke the whole thing in Mandarin Chinese, which is incredibly impressive because his accent, I mean, it seemed pretty good to me. It didn't seem like it was a put-on. It didn't seem like he was struggling with it. He said the slow word's slow, the fast word's fast. Now, I don't speak Mandarin, so I don't know for sure, for sure, for sure, uh, if he did it right, but it sounded right to me. Didn't sound like he was faking it, uh, but he uh, uh, shaved off the sides. He left it a little bit long on top, but as he said in the video, the new haircut that he just got done for another, another movie. He's filming a new movie right now, and they wanted him to switch up his hair. So uh, I definitely think it looks younger now. It looks a little more like the old John Cena in the sense that the sides are shaved. Um, but yeah, I think it's a good move I think his haircut aged him personally and also I don't know man when John Cena steps back in a WWE ring but he's got his movie star haircut he doesn't seem like he's fully committed you know when John Cena steps back into the uh, WWE ring it's so important that he looks like he's ready for a WWE ring that's one of the reasons why the Wrestlemania spot was so good this year even though it was just talking when he came out as the doctor of thugonomics he had a hat on 
He had a hat on, so we didn't see the rug that was sitting underneath it, you know? So congratulations to John Cena. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been waiting for this day to come for a very long time. John Cena got a haircut. Story number four. I think that's worth a story. Story number four is Fighter Fest that went down on Saturday, uh, last Saturday. It was AEW's second show ever, not really a pay-per-view, um, but certainly a show that marked who they were as a brand and started to establish what AEW was uh, more so than they've ever done before. It's not something you can do at a press conference, and when it's your first show, people are just excited to see the first show. Uh, now, for those of you that don't think I talk about AEW a lot, you really should subscribe to the Patreon page if that's what you're looking for, because I did an entire post-show right after uh, uh, Fighter Fest went off the air. You can go on every every uh, tier of Patreon has access to it. It's got audio, video, live, whatever you sign up for, you're going to be able to get some form of that show. Uh, but we broke down everything there. So I'm not going to go match by match or anything like that. I just think that... Uh, couple of weird things happened. You know, AEW did a lot of talking before uh, they showed up on the scene. Um, and two of the things that they really enforced were wrestler safety and presenting a more sports-like uh, product. Both of those things felt like they weren't being followed uh, on the show last Saturday. Neither one of those things felt like they were being followed at Fighter Fest. Uh, as far as wrestlers not being safe, I mean, multiple pile drivers, and then more importantly, was that chair shot. You know, ironically, I didn't feel, I thought that the Dean Ambrose, I mean, I'm sorry, the John Moxley, Joey Janela match was great. Like, I thought that's exactly what it should have been, and Moxley spitting out the thumbtacks and everything, I thought that was great. And, and, and I'm not against hardcore matches at all. I love hardcore matches. I love deathmatch wrestling. But... When you say you're going to... I mean, they almost implied that wrestlers were getting uh, health insurance in their first press conference, when what they really said was employees will get health insurance, which doesn't apply to all the wrestlers, which is the same deal they have in WWE. But um, uh, an unprotected chair shot to the head, uh, definitely a weird thing to present in 2019 as the product that is not only taking it more seriously, but uh, taking health of wrestlers more seriously. And they said, well, the chair was gimmicked, is what they said. Uh, the Young Bucks and Tony Khan both said the chair was gimmicked um, after the pay-per-view. Cody Rhodes, I think, got 12 staples in his head. They said no concussion. But they were bringing up concussions in CTE on commentary an awful lot. And even if, even if the thing had gone perfectly, just the visual of seeing an unprotected chair shot uh, and having the commentators talk about CTE is problematic in and of itself in the sense that while maybe your performers are okay, you know, you're, you're starting to trying to go back to normalizing chair shots to the head. Now, the stunt didn't go as planned because uh, from what it sounds like, and, and if you watch the tape, uh, it looks like when they said they gimmicked the chair that the seat of the chair had some kind of padding or something on it, and that it meant to be that the seat of the chair would come in full contact with Cody's head, but the lip of the back of the chair there hooked him in the back of the head, and that's what cut him open and left him bleeding and everything, um, which is the second AEW show ever and the second AEW show where Cody Rhodes is uh, bled profusely. 
So, you know, I, I think that there is an easy way, even if it was just an error, there is an easy way to avoid those errors, and that's to not even do gimmicked protect, uh, unprotected chair shots. You know, kind of just go, okay, we've kind of figured out that this is not what we're doing anymore. Uh, and as far as taking it more sports-like, uh, the whole pre-show was like joke wrestling. You know, other than the tag match was really great. Um, but other than that, you know, the librarian thing, I, I think everybody universally agrees didn't work at all. And having the sponsor of the show be in the hardcore match, and some people said, like, oh, it's just a goof match. Number one, that goof match is the match that's leading into your main show. That goof match is the match that's supposed to be convincing people to go download the Bleacher Report app, which is nuts because I'm sure people turned off that show at the end of the pre-show going, I don't want to watch this. And secondly, I mean... When WWE, can you imagine if WWE was being brought to you by KFC and they did a full-on, you know, 15-minute, 10-minute match between R-Truth and Colonel Sanders? People would be rioting. I mean, people would be, this is why the WWE is out of touch. This is what's wrong. So that whole thing, I didn't understand at all. Uh, I do think that AEW will probably learn from those two things and move forward very, very differently. Uh, they were also pretty clear that they're not going to do hardcore matches like the one between John Moxley and Joey Janela on TNT television, which is not shocking, um, you know, and, and kind of makes sense. I, I don't know if, if you're not going to be doing that regularly. I don't know why you're putting that on your second paper, on your second show. Um, but other than that, you know, I think Joey Janela's stock rose a thousand percent. I think uh, Sean Spears being brought in, even though it was with the chair shot, uh, into a place of prominence. You know, the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega all look like stars. A lot was done right with the show too. So, all in all, um, an imperfect show. But I like, I like that we're at the point now with AEW where we can officially start watching this promotion build and grow. Because here's the other thing. You start pointing out mistakes that they made. Well, it is their second show. This is when they should be making mistakes. It's all about seeing what they correct. They've got another show in a couple of weeks, uh, same night as Evolve's 10th anniversary. Uh, but they I don't think they've announced if they're televising um, the fight for the Fallen or not. I'm assuming it'll be on Bleacher Report, but I don't really know. And then after that, it'll be all out, and then they'll be on TV. So I, I do think that you'll see changes taking shape based on the reaction of the show uh, as we go with AEW. Uh, and and that's going to be super fun to see. Story number three, speaking of Evolve, uh, your boy Booker T's got himself back into a little bit of uh, controversy. So Matt, I said, uh, speaking of Evolve, it's because Matt Riddle is going to be, uh, uh, I believe, facing Drew Gulak at Evolve. Um at the Evolve 10th anniversary, which they're going to air on the WWE Network. But, you know, Matt Riddle got the whole world talking about him during Super Showdown when he was tweeting at, at Bill Goldberg, who at, after Goldberg blocked him, he just went, Matt Riddle, Riddle just went balls to the wall um, and basically made put out multiple tweets explaining why Goldberg was like the worst wrestler of all time and that he always stunk and that he stinks. Uh, Booker T, not too appreciative 
of Matt Riddle uh, saying these things. He went on his podcast, the Hall of Fame podcast, and said uh, that before Matt Riddle starts criticizing other people, maybe he should uh, go ahead and come down to Houston and train a little bit with Booker T because Booker says he's seen Matt Riddle do his thing. He's seen Matt Riddle in the ring, and Matt Riddle needs a lot of work. That's what he says. He needs a lot of work. Now, you know, I don't know if if that's 100% fair. Whoever knows with Booker T. You know, Booker could be up to his old shenanigans, um, you know, just trying to get some publicity drummed up for the show. Um, But Booker T could also feel that way. I know Booker T takes this stuff pretty seriously. Uh, And to see a young guy insult a legend, maybe it rubbed Booker the wrong way. I could certainly see that. Um, You know, I don't know that Matt Riddle has as much to learn as Booker T is making it seem like. But I'm not going to sit here and question the five-time. You know what I mean? That's my guy, Booker T. I'm not going to sit here and question him. However, you know, it does seem like Matt Riddle is fairly well put together. From, from you know, physique to performance to everything. You know, he connects with the audience. All of his matches have been good. So, you know, I just thought it was interesting that Booker decided to uh, pull no punches and let Riddle know exactly how he felt about him, and it wasn't necessarily good news. Uh, Speaking of not necessarily being good news and controversy in tweets, story number two this week is Seth Rollins apologizing. So we talked about this last week, and I talked about how I was in favor of it. Seth Rollins, of course, uh, going after some people, including Will Ospreay. Uh, So I guess I missed something here. I, I thought that when I was talking about Seth Rollins and the tweets he was sending out about WWE pride, um, you know, I was trying kind of trying to have a conversation about the bigger picture, but there were a couple people, I get all the feedback on, on the podcast. And there were a couple people who thought I was number one, purposely not mentioning Will Ospreay, which is silly. And number two, that thought I was completely avoiding the real point which is the issue that people had was that he made that douchey comment about uh, comparing bank accounts, which, yeah, that's douchey. But I guess it didn't even register to me that that one individual tweet was so offensive that it took us out of the context of the bigger picture, which is the WWE Universal Champion going on Twitter and instead of just taking it and saying, well, we're, we're gonna, when they go low, we go high. We're the, we're, the, we're the big dogs in town, so they can go ahead and take their shots and we'll just keep doing what we're doing. Like, no, to push it forward and say, hey, screw you. I love where I'm working and I love this, this place. And, you know, and once he said the comment about to Will Ospreay and, and, you know, and that Seth Rollins believes that what the WWE is presenting is the best wrestling product in the world. I like that there's people in WWE saying that. And that was my point last week. Um, But I guess a lot of the real heat came down for that one individual tweet where Seth Rollins, you know, I think Will Ospreay was saying that he worked more than Seth Rollins. And Seth Rollins responded by saying, well, I made more money than you. Uh, You know, and I'm paraphrasing in a major, major way. Which, yeah, it's not a nice thing. It's certainly not a polite thing to do. But I also think that, I don't know, when you're going back and forth on Twitter, I've seen much worse going back and forth on Twitter. And maybe the WWE champion, who's a good guy, should not be doing this to fellow wrestlers. But at the same time, you know, people who are outside of WWE can kind of do whatever they want. You know what I mean? And can tweet whatever they want. So I I still 
don't have a major problem, and I would have been fine if Seth Rollins had never apologized. I mean, I don't, and that's nothing against Will Ospreay. I like Will Ospreay. He's had some amazing matches, and I would love to see him come to WWE at some point. Um, but I guess Seth Rollins just didn't want to be bogged down by the negativity, and he did the thing that we have never seen Becky Lynch do. No matter how many people she offends, no matter how low she goes with those low blows on Twitter, uh, he apologized. And he said he was sorry about the whole thing and that, uh, that that tweet doesn't represent him as a person. You know, I don't know. I guess I wouldn't worry about it if I were Seth Rollins. You know, I, I think that at the end of the day, fans of Seth Rollins should let the performance speak for itself and not really worry that much about what is going on on Twitter unless it's so egregious that it needs to be pointed out. But, you know, I, at the same time, I guess Seth Rollins knows that Twitter, for pro wrestlers, Twitter is a, a facet of their character, really, that when people see pro wrestlers tweeting... They don't read it as the man portraying this character. They read it as the character. You know, Seth Rollins' Twitter account is WWE Rollins. It's not Kobe Lopez or whatever his name is. You know, it's, this is Seth Rollins talking, and Seth Rollins is the character. So it's almost like there is that thing about uh, protecting characters, which I agree with. You know, excuse me. I think characters should be protected on Twitter. You know, I, I liked what uh, Drew McIntyre was saying. Yeah, I, I don't think that... Uh, People that you just had a, a, a war with on television, you should be hugging them in, in photos that you post on Instagram. I don't believe in any of that. I, th I think that Twitter and Instagram should reflect the personality that you want reflected on WWE or AEW or any other wrestling TV. You know, I think it should be a, a, a part of your character that you're out there portraying. Uh, I don't think you should go over the top with it. I don't think you should be overly fake with it. But I do think that that's the point of view that tweets should come from. It certainly shouldn't be far removed from that. Uh, but I, I think that Seth Rollins' character has a chip on his shoulder, and it would kind of make sense that he would be going after people like that. So I really didn't mind when he was going after people. It felt like it kind of fit who the character was. But I guess the apology does too. You know, when you see Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch in the ring together, when you see them cutting a promo together— uh, there's no doubt that Becky Lynch comes across as far more aggressive. Um, far more like uh, Becky doesn't give a turkey. Where Seth Rollins may have a turkey to give because he wants to be the representative of WWE, which, you know, it is what it is, but I guess Seth Rollins thought, felt that he did what he thought was right. You know, I don't think this will ever go away. I think the people that are offended by something like that will continue to be offended regardless of an apology. Um, but if it helps Seth Rollins sleep at night, I'm all for it because I want Seth Rollins to be comfortable. Big story of the week, you know, and, and again, this required uh, a bonus show was, uh, at the end, I mean, literally the same morning the podcast comes out last week, WWE announces that, uh, Paul Heyman is going to be the, uh, executive director of Monday Night Raw and Eric Bischoff is going to be the executive director of SmackDown Live. Now, I did a whole bonus show about this and my theories and what I thought, and that bonus show is actually available outside of Patreon. It's available on Patreon, obviously, but the audio is available for free for anybody. It's right on the podcast feed, so wherever you got this from, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, if you missed the bonus show that we put out uh, over the weekend, 
Go back and you can hear all my opinions on the announcement of Eric Bischoff and Paul Heyman uh, coming back into the fold as executives of WWE. And while you're, you know, going through the old podcast, go ahead and jump on iTunes and leave us a five-star review and a, and a, or rating and a nice review. It helps us. Uh, but I don't think anybody quite knew what to expect from Raw and SmackDown this week. You know, there were rumors floating around. Of course, there was the... Uh, advertising material went, that went out with Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff's face on it. But at the same time, people were hearing that uh, these two wouldn't, number one, wouldn't be on-screen television characters, but number two, there were reports on the internet that they may not actually be starting until around August. You know, I think ultimately this move is being made for October. You know, this move is being made for the big Fox move. WWE is treating SmackDown moving to Fox, not like it's just switching channels, but like this is the next era in WWE. This is, I mean, they're going to be on broadcast television across the United States. Fox, it's a big deal. So I think that they are trying to separate products once that happens. Of course, one will be on Monday, one will be on Friday. So travel-wise, it makes it a little tougher to just have everybody do both shows. Um and that's why I think they're they're uh, establishing two very different brains to be in charge of two brands that hopefully will be very different. But uh, I think the wheel started turning in just about everybody's head when Raw went on the air this week. And you started with Braun Strowman versus Bobby Lashley. Very typical match that you would expect to see on an episode of Raw in 2019. But this one was pinfalls count anywhere. And within the first 10 minutes of the match... Bobby Lashley, I think, unless it was, no, Braun Strowman ends up spearing Bobby Lashley through the stage, through the video wall that's on the stage. Sparks went everywhere. Corey Graves dropped an S-bomb. They went to a, a, a wide angle shot. They really made it seem real. They said the word hospital when they got back on the air, which you never hear on WWE TV. They loaded uh, Braun and Bobby into separate ambulances, which I thought was a nice touch. Uh, and immediately people are going, this is a Paul Heyman show. This is a Paul Heyman episode of Raw. Now, based on what I saw on Raw and SmackDown, I really think that, yes, that, that after the announcement of the hiring of Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff, that the WWE kind of feels like they're once again kicking it into another gear and they feel like they're kind of reestablishing exactly what they're doing. You know, you had a lot going on on Raw. I said it on Twitter and I, I stand by it. The first hour of that show was the best first hour of Raw all year. And the episode as a whole might have been the best episode of Raw all year. Um... It clearly had Vince McMahon's fingerprints all over it still. This was not an episode that was just produced by Paul Heyman with Vince McMahon's approval. This is something that... And I wouldn't be shocked at all if Vince McMahon decided he wanted to move his shows into different directions. And he still is in charge of both those shows. But because the news of Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff went out there, people are assuming that these, these, this is different people running these shows. And maybe we'll look at some of these changes with a far more open mind. I thought, like I said, the open was terrific. Um, I loved all the stuff with the club. You know, it's really interesting to see them doing as much as they're doing with Gallows and Anderson right now and Anderson's hot Asian wife. Clearly, they don't want these guys to leave. 
uh, and the reformation of the club in WWE is great. I love that. You know, I thought that the beat up John Cena era of AJ Styles was uh, one of the best. You know, and AJ being able to kind of seamlessly go from good guy to bad guy to good guy to bad guy is one of the many things that makes AJ Styles truly amazing. But Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows, them having three or four segments on Raw, oh my God, I was in paradise. So I thought that was great. Like I said, the opening was great. I was amazing to see the Street Profits show up on Raw. Now, there was that shot of the Street Profits that they went to for five seconds before the show started or as the opening credits were playing or whatever. I think that was done on purpose. I think that the 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 quote-unquote accidental shot of the Street Profits was done on purpose. The cursing was done on purpose by Corey Graves. Um, a lot of that stuff. I think, I think that Raw was orchestrated to feel like a more spontaneous show and to create moments where it looked like WWE had messed up and you have to call your friend and say, turn on Raw because, you know, it's, it, things are going nuts over there. Um, the only thing that I was scratching my head at, and I actually didn't necessarily mind it because it's different and kind of wacky, was the uh, Maria and Mike Canellis thing. Uh, the negative of it is it kind of ignores everything that Mike Canellis has been doing with Maria on 205 Live lately. Um I guess the 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 positive is that it's new and that it feels different, you know? I, I, I think that it's, you know, having Maria lay it on as thick as she is, man, is she a good bad guy. But to lay on what she was laying on as thick as she was laying it on, it's weird. It was very, very cringy. Very, very cringy. Announcing she's pregnant and that, she wishes Becky Lynch was the father of her child. It, it got weird. It got really, really weird. When she called him her bitch, me and my bitch, versus you and yours, and Mike Canales was just like, yeah, yeah, I am. It was kind of like, I I don't know what relationship they're trying to display here, but, you know, hopefully we'll see what happens. Now, apparently she really is pregnant, Maria. Apparently that's real life. That's what the the internet is all saying that that's real life and that WWE didn't really find out about that until after they re-signed, which they just did uh, recently. So, um, you know, like I said, it was it was weird, but I kind of like, I, I'm interested in exploring Mike and Maria, to tell you the truth. I want to know what is going on with these two and where is this going? Uh, I do somewhat agree with, uh, with our Not Sam Schill uh, that submitted an idea for State of Wrestling at the top of this segment. That, you know, I think that Seth Rollins and, and and Becky Lynch, sometimes when they're together, they feel like they're lacking a certain edge. Now, some people are saying, like, oh, have Becky Lynch turn heel, and then do, like, no, no. I don't, you, you can't split them up. You can't have Becky Lynch turn heel. You can't have Seth Rollins turn heel. And if you're women's champion and your men's champion are dating, you might as well take advantage of it. I just think that, you know, there should be less lovey-dovey and more partners in ass-kicking. You know what I mean? It was, some of it was some of it was weird. And, it, and sometimes Seth Rollins comes across as, as trying to be the nice guy as opposed to just the wrestler, you know? So uh, I'm, for on camera anyway. So I, that, that, I, that's what I thought about that. But all in all, I thought it was a tremendous episode of Raw. 
SmackDown was interesting. SmackDown is what really made me go, okay, for sure. When I'm watching Raw, I'm like, okay, they're still kind of uh, commentating and advertising in the same way. The pacing is a little different, but similar. And they're still not wrestling during the commercial breaks. Raw and SmackDown did a much better job of getting creative with that uh, instead of just making every match a two out of three falls match, which is good. Although I think the best case scenario is if they would just go back to wrestling during the commercial breaks. There's absolutely no reason not to, you know. You say that, well, football, basketball, baseball, they don't play during the commercial breaks, so it doesn't make sense to wrestle during the commercial breaks. But that's because football, baseball, basketball all have timeouts from the teams and also have TV timeouts. You know, they don't have to think of creative ways every single time the show goes to commercial break. So I think if they didn't have TV timeouts and they didn't have as many timeouts, they would have no choice but to play as they went. I don't think they would just stop playing for the commercials to go. So I'm not really in favor of not wrestling during the commercial breaks, you know, especially because you have control over what happens in the commercial breaks and outside of the commercial breaks. So it's not like it's that big of a deal. It's not like you're missing that much. Um, But yeah, yeah. So I I did think they were more creative though this time than they were last week. Uh, Also, you know, Drake Maverick and R-Truth are just MVPs of the century. MVPs of the century. We move on to SmackDown, and I thought SmackDown was really interesting because it didn't feel like somebody else was writing it. It just felt like a change was being made. You know, new characters getting highlighted, whether it was uh, Aleister Black hyping up to Extreme Rules, whether it was Shelton Benjamin just randomly kind of looking around with his eyes, uh, whether on both shows it's Nikki Cross and Alexa Bliss together getting more attention than they've ever gotten. And rightfully so. I think they're great together. I think they're super, super interesting. And, you know, who would have thought it for Nikki Cross? But uh, I thought it was a little weird that uh, Kevin Owens just became a good guy all of a sudden. Sami Zayn not on the show, and Kevin Owens was kind of tired of Shane McMahon's guff, which is news to me, you know, and I don't think it was ever really explained why that happened. Um it would appear that they're going in the direction of a Dolph Ziggler-Kevin Owens rivalry. Now, again, Kevin Owens is in the same category as AJ Styles, where he's so good that he can actually pull off good guy and bad guy just like that. Like, it didn't feel awkward, and I didn't hear that many people complaining about the lack of continuity in Kevin Owens' story because he was doing a good job and because the things he was saying were logical. You know, he was speaking for fans who think that what he said about Dolph Ziggler is true, that... uh, uh don't want to see him kind of just read questions instructed to him by Shane McMahon. So I thought he did a good job. I was just surprised that he was a good guy. And then to do the segment with Kofi Kingston and Samoa Joe and to have Kofi flip off Samoa Joe, that was a huge shock. Because Kofi Kingston is the ultimate good guy. If anything, he's marketed directly to children. So to be adding that much ads that quickly to Kofi Kingston, I think is super interesting. I'm interested And uh, I I love seeing where all this is going. Clearly, changes are being made, and it's all happening right now. And we will be there every step of the way. If I missed anything, you can always tweet me at NotSam across the board. You can also join us on Patreon, and you can send me a message or join the Discord room. We had a whole bunch of people join the Discord room uh, this week. So that thing is popping 24 hours a day. Thank you all for being a part of another episode 
of Not Sam Wrestling. We will see you all next week right here. Happy birthday, America. Thanks for listening. Follow at Not Sam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.